Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I can't believe I woke up this morning wondering if my daddy would loan me his overcoat. And here it is just past midnight. I've already robbed a railroad train. I'm sitting in a rocking chair chatting with none other than Jesse James. It's a wonderful world. Casey Affleck with Brad Pitt in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And for fans of the 2007 Andrew Dominic film, it is a wonderful world indeed, Adam. On the outside, looking in before the start of this year's Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s Tournament. And now here it is getting the sacred cow treatment. Jesse James, considered by many of its fans an overlooked masterpiece from this century's first decade, we give it another look and share our top five overlooked films of the 2000s. Plus, the Film Spotting Madness championship match is set. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's good to be back. Thanks for holding down the fort last week, Josh. You and Michael Phillips reviewed the new Dumbo, Tim Burton's Dumbo. I know you're sorry you missed that. And had your fun with a top five movie circus acts. And I thought it was a fun top five, even if I hadn't heard of half of the movies Michael picked. Oh, man, he went full Michael Phillips. I think every pick was earlier than 1954, I want to say. And a testament to a good review, I was compelled to listen to the entire conversation, all 20 minutes plus about Dumbo. We went long. A movie I guarantee you I will never see. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. There's no chance. Pretty sure that as well. I did not expect the review to go that long. He he was a little agitated, Michael. He was. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Film Spotting Madness, of course. We started with 64 films from the 2000s. This week, we get down to the final two. Not the final two that Sam and I predicted when we came up with the seating for the tournament, but pretty close. So we will have the final four results and that championship match a bit later in the show. Plus, we will share our top five overlooked movies of the 2000s. Did you have any special criteria you want to divulge now other than movies that didn't make the Film Spotting Madness cut? Not even that not short at all shortlist? No, no specific criteria. I will get into this when we set up our list. I had a formula that didn't really make it any easier for me. This was kind of hard. Great. Before we do that, though, the true winner of Film Spotting Madness is the assassination of Jesse James. After fans of the film championed it as the overlooked movie of the 2000s, we decided to lift it out of obscurity and give it the sacred cow treatment. 
His children didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. He regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to. And on September 5th, 1881, Jesse James was 34 years old. Can't believe I'm sitting with none other than Jesse James. Many's the night I stayed up, my eyes open, my mouth open, just reading about your escapades. They're all lies, you know. It is interesting the many ways you and I overlap. You're the youngest of three James boys, and I'm the youngest of five Ford boys. You have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. You're five feet eight inches tall, I'm five feet eight inches tall. I honestly believe I'm destined for great things, Mr. James. It's 2007, Adam. Maybe not the best time to release a two-hour and 40-minute art western, even if it does star Brad Pitt. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford came out in October of that year. It received some acclaim. Our friend Scott Tobias was an early enthusiast, and I also gave it a hearty recommendation at the time, but very little in the way of box office. In the U.S., it made $3.9 million on a $30 million budget. That makes its two Oscar nominations, Casey Affleck for Supporting Actor and Roger Deakins for Cinematography, all the more impressive. It seems audiences and even a fair amount of critics, though, just weren't in the mood for a moody meditation on the final days of the outlaw Jesse James, played by Pitt, as largely seen through the eyes of the man who murdered him, played by Affleck. Since then, however, director Andrew Dominic's film has slowly but surely gathered a passionate following for many reasons, including one that listener Tim Klobuchar wanted to make sure we consider. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is Tim Klobuchar, formerly of Minneapolis, now of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, just calling in to say I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you're going to be reconsidering the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, I love the movie for a lot of reasons, but I wanted to focus on the, the aspect of the film that makes me the most hopeful that Adam will reconsider his initial take on it. It has to do with the section of the film that follows the events that are laid out in the title. Robert Ford becomes nationally famous after killing Jesse, and then he and his brother Charlie leverage that fame into a stage performance where they reenact that betrayal of Jesse on a nightly basis. The performance includes several details consistent with the way the, the movie shows the killing. Jesse getting up on a chair to fix the picture, Bob shooting him from behind, Jesse's wife screaming, but a few other details indicate how the production is meant to flatter Bob, um, especially in the way the spotlight hits him after he kills Jesse, the way that he spins his revolver before holstering it like the gunslinger he imagined himself to be, and the way that he says triumphantly, and that's how I kill Jesse James. It's like he was inserting himself into the tales of daring do of the James gang contained in the books that he used to hide under his bed, the ones that even Jesse said were full of lies. This preoccupation with history and how we choose to remember it in order to justify the present, uh, the way that we so casually transpose myth and reality, uh, that's one of the great themes of the Western genre. And I think that play between artifice and truth is what is truly the grade A certified thematic content relevant to Adam Kempinar's interests in this film. So uh, I hope you enjoy your rewatch, guys, and I look forward to listening to your discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. So what say you, Adam? I think it does make sense to start at the ending here with this curious extended coda. How did that work for you, especially in relation to these themes that Tim mentioned? This time around was the assassination of Jesse James, Kempinar Catnip. Yeah, Tim knows me 
very well, apparently. And I would say that it was. I was in long before that epilogue or that coda that we get, though. And of course, that myth versus reality element that Tim touches on, that's in every frame of this film long before we get to that point. I think I was mostly in because of the direction and because of Deacon's cinematography and listener Adam Grossman, who was the leader of the Jesse James cult on Twitter, urging it into madness and urging this sacred cow review into being. He touched on it in an email he sent us. And Michael actually touched on it last week briefly when he was commenting on the movie. The best sequence in this film is that train robbery. And I think we can get into the elements of that that really stood out. But I do love everything that happens in this film post killing of Jesse James, including that Nick Cave performance we get yeah. in the bar with Bob Ford right there to listen to Nick Cave's version of now this legend. And I love that the most Bob can counter with now that he's being portrayed in this song is to point out that the singer got the number of James children wrong. That one little factual misstep somehow undoes everything else. Yeah, as if that would have been singing. Difference. Right. And that dramatization we get on stage that Tim touched on is really stunning as well. There's a moment where the narration touches on how they were regarded as actors. And it suggested that Bob is actually thought of as a fairly good actor and that Sam Rockwell's brother, Charlie, is a bad actor. But there's actually not a bit of truth in either performance, which is really what every actor is trying to get at. And we know that this is all this grand embellishment, but then something changes. And that's what I really love when Charlie becomes not only drunker, but more disillusioned and more haunted by what they've done. And I think it's worth noting here in the grand scheme of things, isn't he actually the bigger coward in this scenario? And is that maybe even some part of the shame in all of this? He's the guy that stood there with the gun drawn, but when the moment called for it, he couldn't do it. Yeah, he at least freezes, his brother yes, doesn't the make the decision in that moment. But he does become the character, Jesse James. He inhabits the man we saw as played by Brad Pitt, the way he walks, the way he talks, even the script changes. They really unnerve Bob. So there's this suggestion that this whole play only kind of sticks together. And really, in some ways, their sanity only sticks together if both men can continue to buy into this myth that they themselves have created and perform this version of events that ultimately suits them best. And once that's shattered, they really can't go on. I think it's ironic, too. If you remember that great line early in the film where Jesse asks Bob, are you trying to be like me or are you trying to be me? This is finally... Bob's chance to actually impersonate Jesse. Of course, he wouldn't do that in this scenario, but he could be the one playing Jesse. And instead, of course, it's his brother doing that. He's going to play the role that he actually had in this scenario, even if it is mostly fiction. And I do see that as maybe the ultimate sort of proclamation of his identity, which he was always trying to get at. He was trying to get at it through Jesse James, attached to that myth and establish himself. It's also ironic that Only in death does he actually become like Jesse. It's only by the very end of the film when we see that the world now has developed this understanding of who he is. Mm -hmm. They have now their own kind of legend attached to him, and they think they know who he is and what he is. That's no longer at all how he sees himself. And in some ways, I think this movie is always dealing with that idea that Jesse, of course, never sees himself the way the rest of the world does. And when his life is taken— He's assassinated, too, 
And we even see it in Affleck's performance a little bit in those closing epilogue scenes, the weariness, that haunted look, the way he even walks through that bar and talks to people seems to resemble the way Jesse spoke to people in some of those flashback scenes. So it's finally there where he does get to take on some kind of the stature and the character of Jesse. And of course, it's only in that fleeting moment in his death, which is ultimately the tragedy of the movie, I think, on one level. And there's insult to injury there, too, is because he's still playing second fiddle. I mean, his legend is not as big. It's nowhere near as big. And I like that the coda also allows us that time to see him post fame, post stage fame, Mm -hmm. at least where he's had to recognize where he has fallen, how far he's fallen, if you want to describe it that way. So you talked a lot about performances there in the code in those stage sequences. And and I like it too. Maybe the thing I like most about it is that it cements this movie as belonging to the second name in the title, that this is really about Bob Ford, this film ultimately. And the coda makes that clear for me. So I like that about it as well. But let's talk more about performances and just get right to the main performances okay. in this film, because I remember being really impressed and surprised, didn't know much of Affleck before this film, was aware of him, but certainly not that he had this inside him. Thought it was great the first time around. This time around, probably my favorite element in the movie. Yeah. It's just having seen what he's done since, I think sometimes that feeds into our appreciation of an early performance from an actor when you realize, yeah, he he had this in him and he did a lot more with it after that. That's certainly the case with Affleck here. And the way he registers first as this celebrity stalker is so sly. At that campground before that first robbery where he's he's always on the edges waiting for his moment. It's super awkward. It's mm-hmm. it's like if you've ever been in a scenario where people are waiting for their chance to, to sneak in and say something to a famous person, that's how Affleck is playing it, right? He's just waiting for that pause and then he jumps in and it's just cringe inducing to watch. He's so good there. Then later on, he gives that amazing dinnertime speech. It might be the same scene you're referencing where he talks about the similarities between him mm-hmm. and Jesse James and brings up something like Both of them have brothers whose names have the same number of letters. And that's the, you know, it's clear before this, but that's when it becomes clear or should be clear to Jesse that this guy's a little off, that he's clinging to something Mm -hmm. like that uh, to allow the legend to also include him in some way. And this time it really struck me, probably because I had not seen King of Comedy when I first saw Assassination of Jesse James, but this Bob Ford is like a combination of he's he's somewhat of a throwback to De Niro's Rupert Pupkin. Yep. And then also a precursor, someone else who it brought to mind was Jake Gyllenhaal's creepy Lou Bloom in Nightcrawler. I can see that. And, and you kind of touched on it in your description there where he, he almost doesn't have his own identity. No. If you asked who is Bob Ford, you couldn't answer that at the end of this movie because he's always trying to be something else. And I think Lou Bloom had that too. Uh, And the last thing that I really appreciated about Affleck's performance here is Bob always wears this shit-eating grin, right, Mm -hmm. throughout the film. And he knows it. The difference between Casey Affleck and Ben Affleck is that Ben Affleck has that same grin in a lot of his performances, but he doesn't seem to realize it. And Casey Affleck wears it knowing it. Something in the darting eyes that he gives us, and it's just that extra level and ability, I think, that distinguishes them as actors, and certainly Casey Affleck puts to perfect use in this performance. Yeah, it was another quick comment Michael made on last week's show that I heard actually just this morning that really encapsulated for me, which is that Casey does not play Bob Ford with any need 
or sense of likability whatsoever. Oh, he no. is completely willing to have the audience not really have any sympathy for him whatsoever. And I think very early on, even as he's talking to Sam Shepard's Frank, the brother to Jesse, there is maybe a moment or two where you think, man, this guy's being really hard on him. And he clearly yeah. just wants to establish himself. Give the kid a break. Yeah. And at that point, we don't really know him. We so don't. We're on but, his side a little bit. But then – all we need is about 30 more seconds to realize that he's going to test our patience. Yeah. And there is his ability to be almost sniveling and conniving one moment and then so innocent and naive the next. And yeah. I don't know how Casey Affleck is able to pull it off, but he does. Of course, I also want to talk about Brad Pitt, yes. who was, as Jesse James, a key part of my initial mixed reaction to this film. Hmm. In 2007. Before I get into what I thought of him this time, I'm curious if you had any change in your take on his performance. The first time, I think what I really keyed into about this film overall, and Pitt was crucial to that, is that it was this parallel to what it's like to live as a celebrity. And I could understand what attracted Pitt to the role mm -hmm. at that point in his career. I think he was post two Oceans films already. Um, so he was an enormous star. And this is very much about how other people relate to stars, how stars carry themselves and hold that myth, even contemporary movie mm -hmm. stars. So it was an easy stand-in. I think that made it really interesting to me. Uh, I think looking at it now and in the context of where Pitt would go, I think he was simultaneously not quite ready for this type of movie, um, but also perfectly cast, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. He was on the verge of stuff like a Benjamin Button, which I like more than most people, Moneyball, Tree of Life, I think are all really strong Brad Pitt performances, different than the star aura stuff he'd been doing earlier. Um, but he was still mostly a star here. He was right on the verge of those. And this movie absolutely uses that element, that star quality here, and also the undercutting of it to allow him – you know, it's very purposeful how he looks in this film. He's mm -hmm. not blonde Brad Pitt, right? No. He looks older. Uh, he's paler. And this is, all goes into the aesthetic of this but film. But he's got Drenching the myth out of it. icy eyes he does, against that black and white he's always wearing. And he's still Brad Pitt, yeah. right? It hasn't completely been scrubbed off him. And I think that's important. So – I think it's a good performance. I think it's one of his better ones. I don't know if it's as layered and skilled as some of the performances we get from him later. Uh, maybe I was more open to it because I, I was just an early fan of Pitt's presence mm -hmm. on screen. So I never really had anything against him. And I do like that element of self-critique here. Uh, it's crucial. Jesse James likes the flattery he gets from Bob, you know, and, and his downfall. I think it's the only explanation for why he keeps him around at all. I absolutely. Agree. And that's his downfall. Uh, think about the scene where he tells him to read that newspaper clip about the James gang. Uh, that's sort of this, he recognizes the simpering. He, he's not a fool. He sees Bob's ill intentions to some degree, but he just can't resist the flattery. Yeah. So one major change in my take on Pitt's performance this time is that overall, I have much more admiration for it. And I was not an early adopter to liking Pitt as a performer. I think it might have been Moneyball, really, that turned a corner for me and then Tree of Life. And I think we've seen some really good performances since. One thing that did not change. So just bear with me for 20 or 30 seconds here is how painfully irritating I do think he is in the first third of the film. I think there was a real shift in his performance as the character and the storyline shift a little bit. But from the very first time we meet him, he's still doing that Brad Pitt tick thing with his mouth where he can't spend more than a half a second on screen without doing something distracting with his lips. And I wish I had and I almost did this. I almost digitized the movie 
and put together a supercut of oh the lip gosh. smacking and all the that, w- that would have been Bob Ford. I'm glad you didn't do that. <laughs> I almost did it though, just because like you're sitting there. I know you're looking at me, going, Adam, this is just something you got to get over. If I showed it to you in like a 90 second clip, you'd go, okay, yeah, he's doing something there. There's, yeah, I be- there's, no, I believe it. it. It sometimes involves eating. It's it's a tick though that he had even before this role, and yes. in the first part of this film, it's all over it. It's, it's half of his performance as Rusty in Ocean's Eleven. 100% it is. And I think even there, it's a way Pitt somehow thinks that by giving that character those ticks, it's giving the character character. And that's the problem. He's going for some kind of insouciance that for me, again, is just pure distraction. And if anything, on rewatch, I found it more noticeable and distracting. One line that did stand out to me, though, from the voiceover, when they're talking about Frank his brother leaving and the loss he felt when he heard about Jesse's passing. There's a line in there where it says he had spurned his younger brother for being peculiar and temperamental. And I thought, well, you know, all the stuff with the mouth peculiar. does make him peculiar. So maybe Pitt was going for that. Okay. Before you get to the transition where you came around on the performance, let me just suggest that maybe this was part of the plan. And I don't know how intentional Pitt was in this, but maybe in the casting, they thought we're going to give the myth, the man, the legend in the first third, because this entire film slowly drains the myth away. Mm-hmm. That's that's the point of the movie, right, is to undercut that myth. And it works to give you Brad Pitt and then take it away from him where he gets quieter. Now, I don't know. I didn't do as close of a study sure. of the mouth movements. Maybe there are just as many in the final two thirds. No, no, there are but not. It sounds like there are not. Believe it sounds me, like I you're looked. the man who would know. I paid attention. So I do wonder if this is part of a strategy to say, okay, let's take some of that away. Let's mm-hmm. be more still. Whatever the direction was yeah. is to undercut Brad the legend. Yeah. I would love love to believe that it was all by design. But again, knowing how much of it has gone on in other pit performances, I do think it was a device on his part, a way to get into the character. And I can applaud him for that, but I don't think it works on screen. In that email I mentioned from listener Adam Grossman, he mentions that apparently Jesse James himself even – at some point in his life, referenced Julius Caesar and feeling like Caesar. And of course, I'm going off of what I know historically, but the Shakespeare play. And for me, there are shades of Julius Caesar, of course, all over this movie. But in addition to thinking of him and that betrayal on the level of Julius Caesar, I think there is at least some suggestion of a Christ figure in him, too, in perhaps the sacrifice he makes at the end of the film, which is something we can get into a little bit more. But he is such a mythical figure. And this movie does very clearly sort of pull on both ends of that rope, trying to further mythologize him and then at once demythologize him. But he's such a mythical figure that in addition to Jesus and in addition to Julius Caesar, I saw him as this almost supernatural presence. He takes on this role almost of death. He basically becomes a grim reaper. Yeah, go for a good chunk of this film travels place to place, man to man bringing with him fear and misery, and ultimately to a lot of these people, death. And as Pitt transitions into that Jesse James, he becomes that paranoid Grim Reaper. He's really fascinating. All the lip stuff does completely disappear. It's replaced by that icy cold stare. It's replaced by a sadness, too, that overwhelms the performance in a good way, knowing that everything he has done in his life has led him to this, which is a life mostly on the run, and he's surrounded by people who claim 
to love and adore him, these sycophants who really ultimately are just constantly lying to him and betraying him. And along the way, he's even compromising his own values. And that's an element I had forgotten about from the 2007 viewing of this film originally. We see him in some of those moments where he becomes in his rage a person that he clearly is not comfortable with him being. And you see those wounds in Pitt's performance. He's not shy about letting that come through. I think he actually plays Jesse as remarkably self-aware, where he understands the effect that his character is supposed to have on a room when he walks into it. There's even a line in the voiceover, I think early on, describing his alternate identity as someone who made any room warmer as soon as he came in. Well, the Pitt we see, the Jesse James we see later, he brings a chill (laughs) into every single room he walks into. And that sense of kind of shame and disgust with himself, there's a self-loathing that I think is something he can't hide. The man, Jesse James, can't hide. And I'll say, too, that entire last scene with him and how that completely plays out beat by beat, that moment of resigning himself to his death And the heaviness of that moment, that's a moment where Pitt doesn't rely on sort of any movie star tricks or the charisma of it. He just allows himself to exist in that space, this odd kind of limbo, this moment between life and death where time seems to stop. It is interesting that the movie presents it, at least I read it this way, as a deliberate choice. Absolutely. You know, for him to allow Bob Ford to mm-hmm. commit this act. And I guess there's a parallel where he might be a Christ figure. I think probably it's more accurate to say that Bob Ford is a Judas figure than that sure. is, a, is a Christ betrayal, figure. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, I think Jesse James' daughter is even uh, might be reading from the Bible or something right parallel to that mm-hmm. scene. So there are definitely some elements of that going on. And yeah, the weight, Pitt carries that weight in the latter half of this film where this guy thinks, you, you can read it in his face, that all of the adventure, which is how it's been presented in these books and maybe lived by him to some degree, how has it led to this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's this cornered sense that he definitely carries. So you mentioned in there the narration, and we definitely need to spend some time on that. It's uh, Hugh Ross doing this very novelistic description of some events. And I thought it had just the right, uh, I guess you could call it Mm old-timey enthusiasm, which might be drawn from those pulp novels, the pulp westerns. But it also has little flourishes of high-minded, like classic literature. And then there's just a dash of modern skepticism that is very crucial. So it's sort of, it's almost like a literary variation on those pulp westerns that Bob Ford would read. It's pulling from them, but doing something different. It's essentially doing the narration alone is doing what this entire film intends to do. So maybe you could say it's not necessary, but I did like still on this repeat viewing the element that it brought to it. Yeah, for sure. I think the language gives it a grandiosity that then something in his voice undercuts, yeah. just like the movie is doing those two things at once. And I think I just love, too, that I don't know the voice. I don't Mm -hmm. recognize the voice and something about that detachment from it actually allows me to kind of look at it through that lens. And that's going to come up more here in a moment of this myth making that the movie is, as we said, at once engaged in and also trying to subvert one of the things about Jesse's character. And as all these legends are told about him and we even see Bob writing as if he's maybe going to pen a new tale of Jesse's adventures with him. Of course, part of it is he never gets to tell his story. 
right? As this whole thing is about storytelling on some level, his life depends on his anonymity. He's, as we said, maybe a little bit of a Grim Reaper figure. He's a ghost. He's a boogeyman. In some ways, he's even, although he's real, he's flesh and blood, he's a fictional character. He's someone that all these tales. He's playing someone. Yeah, all these tales have created a new version of Jesse James that he really isn't. And so many others, really everyone that's in his orbit, Bob Ford, of course, one of these people, they just want to siphon from him as much as they can to create this new perfect story for themselves. And you mentioned it, the touch I love is that moment where he takes off the guns and sacrifices himself, if you will, to Bob shooting him, striking him down in that moment. It occurred to me in thinking about it, though, within this framing of storytelling and how he never gets to tell his own story. He does in that moment, and I think he probably was aware of it. I think this character that we see on screen is probably aware in this moment that that one moment alone is going to shape forever the public's perception of what Bob Ford does to him. Sure, because he's taking in, control. Yes, he's yeah. taking control of his story in that moment, even though it's actually in a way a passive moment. He's making an active choice, but he is giving himself over to what Bob wants to do. He does not fight back at all in that scene. And yet somehow he does control the narrative because it's in that one aspect mainly that he was unarmed and shot in the back that the public forever views Bob Ford as a coward. So is that maybe – partly a motivation for keeping Bob around. We speculated before, is it, was it just the praise? Mm. Maybe this is like a long game that, that Jesse's playing is, is thinking, I'm, this is going to end badly it's gonna end for badly. me. Why don't I try to craft that? And here's a primary person I could manipulate right. to have that happen. Because yeah, he's so. definitely, as you're saying, he's definitely aware of his legend. He is. He's reading the newspaper clips. So yeah, if he wanted to choose how he went out, maybe this was one way to do it. Yeah. And as we've touched on, I think this is a movie that's fundamentally about perspective. It's about what prism we choose to view the world through. And that key line, the tragic line at the end, is that moment where Bob tells us, he's actually telling Zoe Deschanel, this love interest character that she plays at the end of the film, that he was only 20 years old when he did this. The thing that's going to forever define him and brand him as a man in the public eye. And the line that is so important to this film, I think, is he says, I couldn't see how it would look to people. He couldn't see. He had no sense of in the moment. He knew why he was doing it. And he certainly was a lot more conflicted and emotional about it than the character version he plays on stage when he tries to make it seem more heroic and maybe even a little more justified somehow. But he couldn't see how it would look to people. And this movie is very much about that, especially in the imagery and the way Dominic and Deacons choose to shoot a lot of these scenes. I love that use of the blurring we get on so many of those images. And I assumed at the time I saw it and in starting this film that it was a technique designed to replicate these kind of old time photographs yeah, that you often see. The stereoscope images. They images talk about, exactly. Yeah. Even the ones we see of his body at right. the end of the film. And I think that's true. And in fact, I saw a quote somewhere today from Roger Deakins who said, yeah, we were going for that. It was meant to be evocative in that way. At the same time, it finally hit me after seeing so many examples of it in the film that just as much as it's echoing those photographs, it's also mirroring the glass that we are always looking through and that warp of the glass. How many shots think about in this film do you get where someone looks out their window 
to someone, sometimes Jesse, riding up and riding towards them. And they're looking at them through that pane of glass and things are distorted just a little bit. And I only noticed it one time significantly with Jesse. And it's just before he dies, which in some ways I look at, too, as another moment that's demythologizing him there because it's not the Brad Pitt, the gorgeous, if weathered Brad Pitt that we get in that moment, just before he dies, he knows it's coming. He's standing at the couch. He's looking out the window and Dominic cuts to a shot from outside, looking through the window at Jesse and Pitt's face in that moment, it becomes completely deformed. It's almost like a Picasso painting where his eye is because of the distortion of the frame. There are so many reflections in this film Two, just before he dies, obviously, in the picture frame, his face in the ice that he shoots at at one point, and some of the other visual choices that really stood out to me here that I love. The point of view shot, again, all about perspective. The point of view shot when Bob Ford walks into the James household leading into the end of the film, this time when he's come back and Mary Louise Parker as Jesse's mm. wife says, oh, I didn't know Bob was she coming. She wants nothing. To, so she smells him out him. at the very beginning. But it's a POV shot that we don't even know, I don't think, is a POV shot at first. We don't see Bob walking in before we see the shot that is essentially his perspective. And we know that this is all leading up to the assassination. That's why he knows that he's there. We don't know exactly what moment it will come, but that's why they've arrived at this moment together. And when he walks in that house, we get from his point of view, him walking into the kitchen, and it's a shot of the whole family reunited. The consequences of his actions and what he's going to destroy are there on screen for him to consider. And if he's not smart enough or empathetic enough to see it. We as viewers certainly are aware of it in that moment that it's not just the husband and wife meeting each other, but the entire family unit embracing at that stove is what he's seeing in that moment. And one more that watching this at home on demand, I was able to rewind and look at it again because I had no idea what was happening, but I do think it just fits into this, this overall scheme of things being distorted, things being blocked of perspective being questioned is the moment that's also in this end sequence when they're at the James house and Sam Rockwell is off to the side. It's a morning and Bob comes out just to wash his face in the water. And we see him washing, splashing his face with the water. And at one point, Dominic cuts to what his point of view would be with the hands closing on his face. Just for a split second, we get the darkness of those hands coming up and covering his eyes, which I think, too, echoes some of those moments in the film when candles go out or any other moments where sort of the the light fades away. It's another moment like that that is actually very jarring. I think that sequence with the water is also where I'm guessing it's a higher frame rate. There, there's something yeah, taking place where it gets a little jittery yeah. and heightened and suddenly you become hyper aware of, of something. It just feels like there's something in the air. And, of course, there is. That That's the moment of decisiveness, really. So, yes, all that visual warping is is absolutely crucial. What makes it more than just, I mean, it would be cool if it was just evoking the era, but what makes it more valuable than that are the thematic relationships Mm -hmm. that you laid out nicely there. Um, But I also, you have to say, there are just some pure, beautiful, mythologizing Western shots here as well. Because as we've said a couple times now, the movie's trying to do both things. So you have to have uh, the image of Jesse James riding over a hill at sunset and blocking out the sun. Uh, One that I absolutely loved, which is as much camera placement as cinematography. And this will probably bring us to that train robbery at the beginning. One way we understand this is about to really happen is when Jesse feels the track. But then we get 
just we can't feel what he feels, but we can see the pebbles start to fall down around his boot yeah. and realize it's on its way. So that's those are mythologizing shots. And it's crucial that you get one of those at the beginning because we're still in the myth there, mm-hmm. right? It hasn't really been. And it's a question I have for you when it comes to the robbery sequence uh, where they do uh, stop this train in the middle of the woods. They get on board. And um, are there moments there? What, what's maybe an early clue in that sequence that this isn't going to be the sort of traditional Western we might expect in the way this plays out. Did anything jump out at you? I don't know that I'm going to touch on the one you're exactly thinking of, but certainly by the time things start to go wrong, and that includes just seeing the look of terror on the guy's face who they're trying to get to open the safe and Mm -hmm. the way that Jesse treats him and the way he reacts to then when blood is actually spilled in that scene, I think is one of those moments that makes us really question how much we want to prop up Jesse James as a hero in this scenario. And that directly counters the buildup. You're right. I love that moment, that sensory aspect to it, because At once, it struck me as almost the supernatural ability. It's not, of course. It's a very tangible, reality-based thing that he's doing. But who would think to do that? Who would think to know the train's coming because they feel the vibration? It almost makes Jesse James this this character who's so attached to his environment and so in sync with it. Isn't it him standing on the tracks on the pile of blockade? I mean, that's the moment. I actually, here in my notes, I grabbed the frame and put it in here so I could just look at it while we were talking. And the way the light from the train is shot coming through the trees, the complete darkness around them, him silhouetted completely in black. He is carrying the lantern. But other than that, the way that light is coming at him, again, it evokes to me this notion of the afterlife, some kind of light that is racing towards him. And in this moment, he's actually walking away from it, walking back to the barricade, stepping away. But he also looks like this deathly figure in that moment who could be coming out of it towards us. And it is without question a moment meant to mythologize him. The way he is even just standing dead center in the frame on the tracks, his presence there is breathtaking. And then even the way before that, Deacons and Dominic show the members of the gang with their masks on and the way the light just kind of goes through the trees. When they're in the, yes. It just punctuates almost, the trees and they almost look like ghosts with their white hoods on out there waiting. That's the moment where I was like, okay, I'm on board with the rest of this film. And you almost think at first that this is a budgetary trick. Like that they're, because it's a, a relatively low budget film, maybe they couldn't afford a whole train mm-hmm. and they didn't need it the way the lighting through those trees captures the passing of the right. train through the forest. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's really, a, I would have believed there was a train there and not needed to see them get on one, sure. but they actually do. And, and yeah, th- those are some of the demythologizing touches that come early on, the ones you mentioned. And I think when he is about to kill the train operator and uh, one of the members of, of the gang pull him back yes. and, and you see there, there's a um, there's a cruelty there that I think gets exacerbated as he gets more paranoid for, for sure. sure later in the film. But we also see right away that there is a meanness in this guy that doesn't necessarily go with this, you know, Robin Hood type myth that is building up around him. You down on your knees. Why? But you ought to pray. I'm gonna kill you. Get out! You're gonna have to make me.
the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Hopefully that was a good enough discussion, Josh, for the cultists out there. We will wait to hear from Tim. We'll wait to hear from Adam and many others. The movie is available to rent on most platforms or at your local library. It is not available in a Criterion Collection edition yet if the James cultists need a new project i'm sure they can get on that if you have seen the film recently and agree or disagree with our takes we'd love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net film spotting madness is down to its final two combatants we'll share that matchup next then dive into the film spotting top five overlooked movies of the 2000s stay with us The late Agnes Varda with the photographer J.R. in the pair's 2017 Oscar-nominated documentary, Faces, places for those who don't speak French. In that scene, Varda and JR are visiting the grave of the great French photographer Cartier Bresson. JR asks Varda if she's afraid of death. She says she doesn't think so, but admits to thinking about it a lot, then says she's looking forward to it. And when he asks her why, she says, because that will be that in a perfectly pithy response from the great Agnes Varda. I saw that line a lot being evoked in various tributes to her this past week and understandably so. Varda passed away just this last week at the age of 90. And yeah, I think in her last couple of films, there was always an element of her wrestling with her own mortality or her aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can think of and her it embrace may have of been, it. Her, her, her honesty about it. Yeah, that's Let's a good say way that. to put it. Um, it may have been in The Gleaners and I when the camera might have been another documentary where the camera just rests on her hands and she makes a comment about how they've changed over the years. In all those years, Varda had 54 directing credits. That began in 1954 with La Pointe Court ended with the documentary memoir Varda by Agnes that just had its premiere in February at the Berlin International Film Festival. For you and I, Adam, I think we had both seen Cleo from five to seven Mm -hmm. years earlier, but really our main introduction or at least immersion in Varda's work came back in 2017 when we did a six-film Varda marathon. We planned that before we knew anything about Faces Places coming out. That was just fortuitous. We included La Pointe Court, The Creatures, One Sings, The Other Doesn't, Vagabond, I would put up there as her other masterpiece Mm -hmm. that I've seen in addition to Cleo, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. For me, Gleaners wasn't my favorite film of that marathon, but it's the one that I still think maybe sums up her artistic approach the best, gleaning in everyday people and places 
maybe not always finding beauty, but being open to that possibility. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, she often found it. Yeah. And in keeping with one of our topics this week, our top five overlooked films of the 2000s, I almost did cheat and have a Varda pairing at number one because both The Gleaners and I and The Beaches of Agnes would qualify both films from 2000 to 2009. And I think that as a pairing, they work perfectly to sum up her endeavor as an artist. And yes, I might actually point people first to Vagabond or Cleo from 5 to 7 as a starting point, but you can't go wrong watching two very fanciful documentaries. One, exactly like you said, Josh, in The Gleaners and I, that shows how she can find beauty in everything, in every part of life, really. And then that introspective turning the camera on herself and being able to make that also beautiful art. You get that dichotomy in those two films and would absolutely encourage anyone to seek them out. If you are curious about that marathon, maybe you didn't follow along with the marathon back in 2017, but you have been reading or hearing all of these encomiums to Varda and you are interested in learning more about her work, our marathons are available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. You can find all six of those shows plus our Varda Awards where we talked about our favorite picture, our favorite moments, and more from that marathon. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And speaking of those, Josh, we are going to move on, unfortunately, to another filmmaker who just recently passed away. But Stanley Donnan has been a blind spot largely for both of us over the years. We are going to start with his 1949 debut, the MGM musical On the Town, starring Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. Four-film marathon, probably, just like the recent John Cassavetes marathon that we wrapped up. We are still deciding on what that fourth film will be, but we're excited to start it off with On the Town here in just a couple weeks. On the Town, on order from the library as we speak. Looking ahead to next week, I'm going to give one more plug for the Conference on World Affairs. I won't be on the show because I'll be out in Boulder, Colorado. This is April 9 through 13. If you can't come to Ebert Interruptus, where we're going to spend four days breaking down Wally. If you can't come to some of the film panels that I'm on as part of the conference, or you can't come to the Film Spotting Meetup in Boulder, that's going to be April 12. Details for all of this is at filmspotting.net slash events. There's one more thing I'm squeezing into my schedule I wanted to mention. I'm going to be at First Presbyterian Church in Boulder, Thursday, April 11, 7 p.m. They've invited me to do a Movies, Our Prayers book presentation. So, packed week. Thanks for giving me the week off from the show, Mm. Adam. That will help me maintain my sanity in my place will be our friend Scott Tobias yes. from the next picture show. And what else you guys got planned? Well, we're really just going to focus on Claire Denis. We're going to talk about her new film, High Life. And you're going to hear from the exalted one, Claire Denis herself. She is going to be on the show. At least that interview is currently scheduled for next week. Scott may actually sit in and help me out with it. He is more of a Denis expert. I think I've seen four of her films, but she's still a filmmaker who I feel like a bit of a neophyte with. So Scott may be part of that conversation. He will definitely be part of the conversation about High Life, a film starring Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. It says here, set in deep space where Pattinson and his daughter struggle to survive living in isolation. Now, Juliette Binoche, I'm guessing, does not play Robert Pattinson's daughter. So we'll have to figure out where she factors in. But then time, again, time travel with I Denis mean, who knows? and with as nuts as this movie allegedly is, you never know. I am sadder 
I know I'm sadder about missing this show than you were about missing the Dumbo show. Yeah, probably. High Life, one of my most anticipated films of the year, so I will catch up with it when I get back. Yeah, somehow you're also going to miss out on the crowning of this year's film spotting madness champion. Yeah, that's all right. Okay, you can live with that. <laughs> the winner will be announced on next week's show. I want to go back real quick because you mentioned that when you're going to be out in Boulder, you're going to have another film spotting meetup. I had a little bit of an impromptu film spotting meetup this past week Mm -hmm. when I was off. So I just wanted to give a brief thanks to a couple film spotting listeners. I was in Detroit for a few days, had a couple nights free, wanted to take a group out. I was with four other people to a nice dinner. And the only person, honestly, I really know in the Detroit area, the same person every film spotting listener knows at this point. Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. Of course. Now, I had no idea, Jeff, I'm going to admit, where Ferndale was. I wasn't sure if Ferndale was anywhere near Detroit. And did, you would have any Jeff knowledge. Did Jeff make a five-hour drive? He did not. He Michigan's did not. a big state. I guess he doesn't love the show. No, he didn't need to because it turns out that Ferndale is basically, I mean, I think it's a suburb of Detroit. You okay. call it that. It's 10 to 15 minutes away. So Jeff weighed in. I said, I need some restaurant recommendations, good places, somewhere where I can really have a good night out with some friends. And he gave me four or five options, did my research. One of them stood out and actually not far from Ferndale. We had to take an Uber 10 or 15 minutes north of the city. And then it just turned out randomly that we got there. And as we got to know our waiter, Max, a little bit, and we started talking that one of the other employees at the restaurant, Colin, is a huge fan of film spotting and saw my name on Look the reservation you. list. Look at you. So I got to meet Colin and they took incredible care of us. And we had a wonderful night and an amazing dinner. So I want to give a shout out and a thank you to Jeff, of course, for the recommendation. And then, of course, to Colin for helping to take care of us. Got a chance to talk to him for a few moments. And if you're out in that area at all and you have not gone to Mabel Gray, you need to rectify that right away. You're pretty much Jesse James at this point. Yeah. You better watch your back. Yeah. <laughs> Colin was not at all like Bob Ford. No? Nope, nope, not at all. He didn't Colin. try to find don't out. Let, don't let Josh paint you that way. What, if you shared a birthday or anything nope. like that? We didn't go there. Okay. Just talked about film. Just talked about film a little bit. I think he said he was a listener since Mad Max Fury Road. Nice. Yeah. So again, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everybody at Mabel Gray. One more quick note, some film spotting housekeeping here. We just found out today as of recording the show that we are nominated for the first time for a Webby Award, which seems to be a pretty big thing. Only five shows nominated in the podcast category for TV and film. We're up against some pretty stiff competition. Yeah, let's not name them. No. Because we'll probably lose some listeners exactly. to those shows if we haven't exactly. already. But we are very excited. And there is a voting component to this. It's not what decides everything like Film Spotting Madness, for example. But there is a people's choice vote in each category. So if you would like to show Film Spotting some love. We would appreciate that support. You can do it. it. takes only a minute or two. And the address is vote.webbyawards.com. We will also provide a direct link to the voting for our category in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But everything you need to know about the Webbies is at vote.webbyawards.com. Maybe the Jesse James cultists can put some of their energy towards that as Seriously. well. Seriously. That would be great. It we'd, would be We'd great. probably win. It would be different. If we could just give it another go round. Remember me. Try your best. 
Maybe we can. Um, Josh, are you going to tell Clementine the rules of film spotting madness? There are no more go-rounds. There's only the furnace. It's brutal. And I'm breaking those rules myself by smuggling that copy of Wally to Colorado. Whatever it takes. Exactly. (laughs) Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey there in Michelle Gondry's Charlie Kaufman penned Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, one of our four madness finalists. It went up against overall number one seed, No Country for Old Men, in its last matchup. There's no way it beat number one overall seed, No Country for Old Men, right? We'll see. We will find out here in a moment, but we're going to start with the other final four matchup. Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring. These plucky hobbitses making their run. Can you believe it? Through the big dance. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. No, we shouldn't. Up against Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. So here's the road to the final four for these two films. Fellowship beat City of God, Pixar's The Incredibles, Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, and Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. It wasn't supposed to accomplish at least two of those feats. No, that is impressive. There Will Be Blood, that beat Joe Wright's Atonement, Amelie, Nolan's Memento, and Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Michael Locker in San Leandro, California says, There Will Be Blood didn't just reveal what movies could do, it revealed what a director could do. In this case, recast himself as an auteur with an impossibly precise vision partnered with a star who surgically embeds himself so deeply in his characters, you'd worry about the guy if he didn't seem so in control. He made an uncompromising period movie where minutes go by without dialogue, where a shrieking string by a rock guitarist channels Penderecki and The Shining. Guys, it's the coolest damn shift a modern director ever made and one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. Fellowship, it's the pretty good third best movie in a fantasy trilogy that had more interesting things to say down the road. If it goes in the furnace, the best Gollum scenes for Adam and Josh to butcher are still out there. That's a good point. I like that. I'm glad we still have. Oh, no. Gollum's gone, too, isn't he? Yeah, I guess so. That's not how it works, Michael. Jamie also chimed in. I was 17 years old when There Will Be Blood came out, and it was truly a transformative experience for me. It taught me to understand the importance of subtext, themes, and the power of auteur filmmaking. In so many ways, this film still informs my views of politics, art, and the relationship between the two. But the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the most important film series of my childhood. Why would you take my childhood away from me? It will be a perilous journey, but I'll happily take on the burden of carrying PTA's masterpiece myself to throw into the fires of Mount Doom. (sighs) Wow. Ramon Baharanda closes us out. Please, there will be blood. Obvs. Is that how you say that? Obvs. I'll have to consult my daughter, Sophie, who also talks like that. Thank you, Ramon, for that. Let's find out then, Josh, does the clock strike midnight for our Cinderella who's going to advance? It's over for fellowship. All of them, every single hobbit going into Mount Doom, into the lob, into the fire. I like that idea. All the losers. That's where they get burned. That's where they go. There will be blood won. 62% of the vote. Pretty decisive. Yes. Now, let's see who Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece will compete against for Film Spotting Madness bragging rights. We have... Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus the Cone Brothers' No Country for Old Men. No Country beat Duncan Jones' Moon, Ryan Johnson's Brick, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, and Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums to get here. Eternal Sunshine beat Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, Pixar's Finding Nemo, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, and somehow, my beloved Mulholland Drive from David Lynch. Here's Stephen Miller. 
What does Team Sappy have left to root for? The sun has set on Jesse and Celine. Bob Harris's whisper will stay forever untranslated. What once was will never again be. We wanted love, but film spotting voters just weren't in the mood. I see what you did there, Steve. Wanted spirit, only to see it banished away. Now there's a choice between masterful, bone-chilling nihilism and messy, open-ended humanism. I'm turning in my cinephile badge and voting for the bleeding heart mess. And next week, if somehow it becomes a battle of heart versus blood, you know what hill I'm dying on. (laughs) We do. Now this comment comes to us from, I'm going to go with, Timber Livesey. Probably wrong. But it's a great name. Can Josh please revisit Eternal Sunshine before he flippantly votes in the semifinals? These are both fantastic films, but which one provides some semblance of hope for the human condition and which one shoots you in the head with a cattle gun? The choice for me is clear, spotless even. And don't get me started on the overhype of There Will Be Blood. I'm eternal sunshining this madness all the way. Now, I'm going to have to go back to my notes. I thought I voted on last week's show for Eternal Sunshine. I just you listened to you that just show listened. this morning. I remember, of course, Michael going into his usual rant, his anti-no country very, rant. Very disrespectful. Yes, and you, you defended it. But I don't remember how you voted. According to my notes here, which doesn't mean this is what I said on the show, I did vote for Eternal Sunshine. Okay. That's what Timber Livesey. Livesey. Yeah. That's what Timber wants, right? That is. Okay. But you know what? Maybe Timber just thinks you're too flippant in general. I don't know how that's possible. (laughs) Let's get to the results then, Josh. It is shockingly an upset, but a fairly close one. The number four seed, Eternal Sunshine, taking down the Cone Brothers. Look at that. Last year's Film Spotting Madness champion with Fargo being voted the best film of the 90s. The year prior, Film Spotting Madness champion, the Cone Brothers being named the best living filmmakers. Yes. And yet they are out. Of Film Spotting Madness, Eternal Sunshine, 53% of the vote. Is Eternal Sunshine that strong, or is there some Coen Brothers fatigue? Is there a contingent of voters who just didn't want to see them at the top again, and that's why they leaned? Maybe. I mean, it didn't really inform my vote, if I did indeed vote for Eternal Sunshine, which I can't entirely remember, but maybe that came into play, because this is a shocking upset. It really is. And obviously, it was a number four seed. We thought Eternal Sunshine had a shot to go this far, but I really am surprised. And I do want to share this one comment that I hope is being somewhat flippant and not literal from a listener named DJ Mott in Chatham, Mass. I'm going with Chatham. Yeah. We always butcher the Massachusetts names, but Chatham, Mass. He says, A-Y-F-K-M, double exclamation points. I'll let you think about it for a little bit, but I know no, what I he's got saying. It. I okay, got you it. got it? Okay, yeah, good. I speak Sophie. <laughs> David says, Eternal Sunshine, better than Lost in Translation, better than Mulholland Drive. Stick a fork in film spotting for me. I'm done. (laughs) Clearly, the listenership is a different demographic. The good news is I pick up 100 minutes of free time every week to do something which doesn't aggravate me. (laughs) Wow. Like reading some textbooks on tax law. (laughs) Makes much more sense than the results of film spotting madness. Here's the best part. Best of luck in the future. Signed, used to be a movie guy, DJ Mott. Wow. Not just we, us. Yeah, we didn't just destroy He's film done spotting. With cinema. It seems that we've destroyed cinema. And we've definitely lost his webby vote. Well, actually, though, it's our listeners who ruined it for DJ. Yeah. Well, they're the ones who voted. it out on us. <laughs> just because we're hosting We're this. sorry, DJ. Apparently not going to be happy with this Film Spotting Madness 2019 championship match. It is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus There Will Be Blood. Are we sharing our votes? Yeah. I mean, no-brainer, there will be blood. 
Well, I don't think that's true at all. The film that I thought, well, I love Eternal Sunshine, but it's the number two overall seed that happens to correspond with me viewing it as either the first or second best film. Yeah, but you you don't seed them strictly based on your personal preference. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to do that? (laughs) Oh, you do? No, I said it happens to correspond. (laughs) Ah, okay. I see how this works. So just for Timber Livesay's sake, Uh I'm voting Eternal Sunshine. (laughs) Just that's to get all, on the good it. side of yeah. timber. And it, well, you know, because I'm flippant about this. Okay, but you don't really mean it. Yeah, I think I do. You do. I, I will say for the sixth time in this tournament, <laughs> I should really revisit Eternal Sunshine before Which, voting. We might actually revisit it. We're going to somehow hang on to one special copy for a sacred cow. Yeah, I'll stuff it where I've got Wally. Yeah. <laughs> A few others that I won't mention right now. Uh, yeah, I'm voting Eternal Sunshine. I feel good about it. Feel okay. really good about it. I, there's no problem here. Okay. We're going to move on then. Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. This is going to decide it all. And it only makes sense to close out this look at Film Spotting Madness with a check in with Film Spotting Madness founder, listener Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. Hello, Adam, Josh, Sam, and Film Spotting Nation. This is Film Spotting Madness founding father. Mike Merrigan calling with a check-in on the madness. The tournament is winding down, but heating up. It's given us more surprises than a Michael Phillips top five list and fewer disappointments than an Adam Kempinar massacre theater. How about a check-in on the bracket challenge? Uh, I won it last year. It seems that I might win it again, but the real upset might be at the back of the pack. Maybe, just maybe, the Larson curse is broken. We'll have to wait and find out. Good luck in the finals, everyone. Enjoy the madness. It's true, Mike. The Larson curse may be broken. For the record, it took you four attempts yeah. to get that yeah. out because That'll you, be the just, outtake. you don't want no, to say it. No, I can't it. say it. I can't say <laughs> that you are not the loser of Film Spotting Madness. I'm not going to get too gleeful yet. I, I know something could change. No, it really can't. Really? No, I don't think it can. I haven't lost? You are not going to lose. Have you ever it's seen done. someone so happy to just have not lost? <laughs> right. I know. That's different I get from it. winning. I get it. I wish I could share your joy, but I think I'm going to be in your spot this year. So the bracket wow. contest is you, me, Sam, and Mike Merrigan. The loser has to watch the latest Adam Sandler movie to show up on Netflix. You've lost for at least four years in a row since we've been doing this bracket challenge. You've had to watch a bunch of Adam Sandler movies on Netflix. It might be my time oh my let's goodness. look at the standings sam had no country versus the dark knight in the finals oh he's out so he's out he finishes with 113 points i had the dark knight and eternal sunshine in the finals oops if you look at my bracket that i scanned and submitted to the group i had eternal sunshine in the final and at the last second convinced myself that no i couldn't go against no country for old men crossed out eternal sunshine and went with no Country for Old Men. I'm done with 112.5 points. Wow. I am so glad we have those screenshots of our brackets for yeah, proof. I know. They're there. <laughs> now you, Josh, you had No Country and There Will Be Blood in the final. So your new total is 117 points. Now, again, as I've said many times on the show, I'm not very good at math, but I believe that means I've beaten both you and Sam. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what sure it I had that right. Yeah, that's what it means. Mike Merrigan also had no country and there will be blood in the finals. His new total is 128 points. Wow. You both misguidedly went with no country for old men to win it all. So we can now officially call it 
Mike Merrigan is the winner of oh, Spotting Madness. It's over, regardless of how the final finishes. But even more important than Mike Merrigan being the winner is I'm not I the am loser. the loser. And I lost to Sam by half a point. Yeah, that's got to hurt. I lost to Sam by half a point. That's not going to hurt as much as the Sandler movie. And Probably I think we not. should add to your punishment. You have to watch it in one oh, okay. sitting. No breaking this up over 20 parts. We'll see. We'll see. Mike, help me out here. <laughs> Voting for Film Spotting Madness again is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Voting will close 5 p.m. on Monday, and the Madness Champion will be crowned. Next week, it's finally over. Film Spotting Madness, it concludes with the winner, the best film of the 2000s. Well, before we say goodbye to the 2000s, Adam and I are going to share our picks for the most overlooked movies of that decade. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Been a while since we've had a chance to devote some time to thank yous and acknowledging the donations of film spotting listeners. You guys are the lifeblood of the show, starting with Mark S. and Yu Young, who tells us, Josh, that he first came across film spotting back in 06 or 07 when he was still a high school student in Wuhan, a river city in the middle of China, searching for English learning materials. Now working in Minneapolis as a data science professional, Yu Young says, I still keep the habit of listening to your program, trying to better grasp the universal language of cinematic arts. I feel now is a good time to start giving back to show my appreciation for all your hard work. Please be aware and proud of the global impact you guys have made and keep rocking. By the way, really looking forward to hearing more talks on Chinese films. I remember Adam is a fan of The Heat of the Sun. I promise there are many more worth checking out. So I hate to ruin this image of me for you young, but unless there's an alternate title for Heat of the Sun, he's confusing me with another podcaster, uh, another critic, perhaps. Just go with it. Yeah, just, just go, go with, with it. it. No, it's too late. I haven't seen that film, but contemporary Chinese cinema has been on our future marathon list for some time, and we might just get to it at some point down the road. We also got a Silver Club donation from Daniel H., Parts Unknown, and Reed from Salt Lake City, who says, Hey, film spotting team, I'm making a long overdue donation to celebrate getting accepted to UCLA's MA in Cinema Studies program. Nice job, Reed. Your show definitely played a role in motivating me to get more serious about film. So before I go completely broke from student loans, I figured I ought to pay the piper. Thanks for sharing your knowledge about and passion for the movies. Congrats, Reed. We also heard from Julio Oliveira in Austin, Texas, the host of the Contrarians podcast and someone I've been able to share a beer with down there in Austin. I mean, did you actually share a beer or did you buy him his own? Uh, well, he did just give a positive review to Dumbo, so I wish I hadn't bought him a beer. Ouch. So I finally donated, Julio says. It was $60, so I guess it's the $5 a month category? Sure. 
I'll do better from now on, I promise. First off, the appreciation paragraph. You guys are great. I love the show. I love the intelligent conversation, the sense of humor, the interactivity with listeners, even your misguided bashing of most MCU movies. Do we really do that? Maybe. I love them as they break my heart. It was a blast to meet Josh when he visited Austin last year. Can't wait to meet Adam and Sam someday. Attending a live show is on the bucket list. Secondly, my two cents regarding the low-key Netflix controversy going on. So you remember this? This came up in comments the last time we did donations, which was like three months ago. So it's a very low-key Netflix controversy. (laughs) Okay. Well, Julio says, I think Netflix is great. Any new channels of distribution for films are good news. I understand people having trouble letting go of the theatrical experience. I prefer watching movies in theaters too, but shunning good slash interesting Netflix movies as a protest is not going to do anything to get them to theaters. Supporting them will. Supporting them wherever they play, be it movie theaters, Netflix, Hulu, what have you. Exhibitors want to make money. Show them that you're interested in a specific product and they'll chase it. Not watching a Netflix movie doesn't do anything other than telling Netflix that they shouldn't support that filmmaker slash venture. Julio closes by saying, me, I'm going to keep enjoying the hell out of the Netflix era and the Hulu era and the Amazon Prime era, etc. I love that there's a potential place for middle budget movies again. Thirdly, have I mentioned how much I love your show? Well, thanks, thanks, Julio. Julio. And I feel better now about buying him that beer because I kind of agree with him on the whole Netflix thing. Now yeah. I remember the, the debate we had. And, and yeah, it is more exposure. You got to like that. Finally, Robert Casanello. He's in Winter Springs, Florida. He gave us a gold level donation. Thank you so much, Robert, for that. Thank you to all of our donors, including all the monthly subscribers. We really do appreciate every cent that we get. Who is the greatest basketball player? in the history of the game. Um, I mean, do you mean ever? Come on, this is easy. Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan. And why was he the greatest? Because he paced himself. Because he always had something left at the finish. Magic Johnson called it winning time. See those guys over there? Yeah, those guys think they're kicking ass. But believe me, it is early. We are a long way from winning time, so pay attention. Okay. Campbell Scott and Jesse Eisenberg there in Dylan Kidd's Roger Dodger from 2002, a movie that myself and film spotting producer, former co-host Sam Van Hallgren champion a lot on the show, including way back on episode eight. At that point, Josh, I called Roger Dodger the number one overlooked movie, I guess, of all time. That was 2005. Me. Yeah, very, very bold. bold. A movie that came out in 2002. I called The most overlooked movie of all time. But both of us, Sam and myself, do adore that film. And longtime listeners are probably aware of that. I don't need to talk about Roger Dodger anymore. Definitely not eligible for this week's top five overlooked films of the 2000s. So this is becoming sort of a tradition tying in with Film Spotting Madness. Last year, when we did the best films of the 1990s, we discovered that Miller's Crossing, one of the films in the tournament, was in need of a rewatch, certainly by me, and we gave it the Sacred Cow treatment and did our overlooked films of the 90s. This year, decided to devote the first part of the show to The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, a movie that probably has gone under the radar a little bit more than Miller's Crossing over the past couple decades. And we thought, why not go ahead and shine a light on a few more films from the 2000s that definitely did not come up in the Film Spotting Madness talk on the show over the past six or seven weeks, didn't make the tournament, and also really weren't even considered by the selection committee, despite 
my appreciation for them, not movies that maybe have a wide enough fan base to justify their inclusion. Josh, how did you go about this time establishing what constituted an overlooked movie? Well, this was really difficult because I had 10 years of top 10 lists to access of my own yeah. to reference as a foundation for this because that was those were the main years I was working as a daily newspaper film critic. And here's where the trouble comes in if you have somewhat contrarian tastes and your top 10 lists will have a few titles that are a little bit odd. I had 22 films pulled from those top 10 lists that I really could have put on this list. Now, narrowing that down, I got a little bit of help because on episode 396, we revisited. <laughs> I've got a funny story about that in a second. <laughs> okay, good. We revisited top five overlooked films again of all time. And I can't laugh too much at what you put on yours the first time you did it because I had three titles from the 2000s on that list. So these are the ones – I disqualified for this list because I named them there. Monkey Bone, the live-action Henry Selleck film, The Weatherman, Nicolas Cage comic drama, and then Spike Lee's Bamboozled. So that took three away. I yes. still had a whole bunch to choose from. I whittled them down to the five I'll get to. Okay, so this is all true. This is how this actually played out and how big of an idiot I am. I'm approaching this top five list, and I had an idea that I – Slack to Sam because I needed a sounding board. You know, often with these top five lists, and Sam's wired the same way, we like to have organizing principles sometimes to guide us as we form these lists. And I suggested to him, what if these are the top five overlooked movies from the 2000s I would most want people to see, almost as if I was programming my own Ebert Fest? I thought that's how I could approach it. But then okay. I even said to Sam, but it's so hard to define what constitutes overlooked anyway that yes. without coming up with that definition, I don't know that that actually helps me. So I kind of just put it aside and I went to more conventional criteria. I thought about movies that just like last time with the 1990s, these are movies that weren't part of Film Spotting Madness. They really didn't appear on any of the lists I found online of best films of the decade, any of those retrospective lists, whether it was 50 or 100 films, they weren't really included. And I will add that I ignored a lot of great films that probably qualify as overlooked based on box office that. I think I've mentioned enough on the show over the years and also in cinephile circles. I think they're regarded highly enough that or, they don't really make sense. Or maybe grown in stature among yeah. cinephiles too so over time. Yeah, do I, I really need that. to champion Master and Commander or The New World from Terrence Malick or In the Bedroom or even Michael Winterbottom's 24-Hour Party People? I decided no. I'm going to give them a little bit of love here, but otherwise they just didn't really fit for me. So I'm then forming my list. I have my five movies chosen. Mm-hmm. I'm looking through my Google Docs just for some notes on films, and I come across a top five list that's called <laughs> Overlooked Films. And yes, Josh, on episode 396, mm -hmm. this goes back to May 4th, 2012, 20 episodes into your tenure here on Film Spotting, we did an Overlooked Films list, basically revisiting the one that happened on episode eight of the show. Would you believe that all five of my choices were from the 2000s? Oh, my goodness. Now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> Even the memorial list title I went with, the Never Let Me Go memorial list, is from the 2000s. Oh, no. I had no idea I did that, but all five movies I picked at that time were from the 2000s. And even more than that, that whole idea I had, that brilliant idea of programming my own film festival. You used it there? I already used it back on episode 396. I even talked about wow. who I would have attend on behalf of the film at my film festival 
to give us insights on it. No new ideas here. We no, might as well shut this thing down. No new ideas whatsoever. <laughs> Please we, tell me you brought an five intern, new titles. Andy, you should have been somehow involved. You should have read my <laughs> mind on this. So, no, thank goodness that I had five different titles. Okay, good. That were not those five. Otherwise, I would have been a relieved. lot of, of last-minute shifting. I'm very relieved. So, let's jump right in then, Josh. Your number five. Overlooked film of the 2000s. So when we talk overlooked, I think we have to talk comedies. They're just not taken seriously or thought of as they just don't have the prestige and get forgotten as we talk about the great films and look back. So I'm going to start with a comedy. 2006's Nacho Libre. <laughs> okay. This is from the Napoleon Dynamite team of Jared and Jerusha Hess. Mike White here is assisting on the screenplay. And yes, it stars Jack Black. This will sell you, Adam, as a Mexican friar at an orphanage who dreams of becoming a luchador. This is a masked theatrical wrestler in the world of lucha libre. Black teams up with a street criminal played by Hector Jimenez to go undercover as a tag team, wrestle to make money for the orphanage, despite, you know, it being banned by his religious superiors. All right. There's a ton of funny stuff here. Trust me, Adam, about piety, oh, a ton about religious hypocrisy. There are some wonderfully outrageous costumes. And I think this is one of Jack Black's best straight comic performances. He gets a few chances to sing, of course. So you got to love that. His eyebrows have to be at their wiggliest, I think, because they're inexplicably competing with this curly mop top he chooses to have for the part. Okay. Orphans. Listen to me. Listen to Ignacio. I know it is fun to wrestle. A nice pile drive to the face. Or a punch to the face. But you cannot do it. Because it is in the Bible not to wrestle your neighbor. So you've never wrestled? Me? No, come on. Don't be crazy. Listen, I know the wrestlers get all the fancy ladies. and The clothes and the free creams and lotions. But my life is good, really good. I get to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and make some soup. It's the best, I love it. I get to lay in a bed by myself all of my life. It's fantastic. Now, is it problematic that Jack Black is playing a Mexican character? Probably. Questions no one would have asked you and if, if you hadn't brought it up. And if so, so is much of Massacre Theater. <laughs> Black's accent definitely veers into Italian by way of Vigo Mortensen in Green Book territory. That's part of the pleasure of Nacho Libre. I think ultimately, too, I can defend that choice because affection, not mockery, is at the heart of this movie. I think that's also a hallmark of the Hess's films. And here, especially for the movie's loser characters. It gives Nacho Black's character the sort of reverence that other films give to matinee idols. It just looks at him this way, no matter how ridiculous he is being. And Black plays him as if he deserves this sort of vantage point, this sort of treatment. By the end of the film, despite all the silliness, we believe it too. Nacho Libre, Adam, have you seen it? Have I seen it? I glanced at the film spotting archive. First, I have to ask, what is it with you in comedies where characters speak a lot of Spanish? Is that just a thing Casa for you? Padre? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't become a trend until there are three at them. Okay. Don't I'm pigeonhole sure, me. I'm sure I can find one. But looking at the archive of our ratings back on episode 108 of Film Spotting. Where at that point, you guys review. were experts. So 
<laughs> Main review, Nacho Libre, Sam and I, two stars each. Out of two? Out of five. <laughs> you were working with the two-star rating nope. system at that point, nope. right? <laughs> not, not fans of Nacho Libre. We were probably too hard on it. We yeah. were probably too hard on it. I'll give you that. I can just see the two of you sitting in the theater, arms yep, folded. Totally. Serious critics do not like this sort of stuff. 100%. <laughs> All right. My number five overlooked film of the 2000s is the movie that is probably the most unoverlooked of all five of my choices, meaning it's the one that's probably most widely seen. Most people listening have probably at least heard of the movie, whether or not they have made the time for it. It made $65 million at the box office, not a huge haul, but you do have to consider that it was made for 62. So this was a gigantic disappointment. Mm -hmm. That's $65 million worldwide. In the U.S., it only made like 36 or 37. In its favor, it also is mostly appreciated by critics. It has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. But if you look at any list of the best films by this filmmaker, and the filmmaker is Ridley Scott, made 20-plus movies, Matchstick Men is usually mm. in the bottom half. This 2003 con man film starring Nicolas Cage and... The Assassination of Jesse James owns Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. So good in this film. This is a movie that has been an honorable mention a few times over the years, been in consideration for various lists, a few times including top five con movies. It made only one top five list, though, over the years. And I'm not going to say which one that is because that might give away some of the fun, actually, of Matchstick Men. But this is Nicolas Cage two to three years before he hits that straight-to-DVD point of his career that he still seems to be ensconced in. He plays Roy, who is a con artist in L.A. Sam Rockwell is his partner, Frank, and he has a lot of issues, including Tourette syndrome and OCD, and he has a really bad panic attack, and that's when his partner suggests he sees a psychiatrist. And through that whole process of going through therapy— he eventually discovers that he has a daughter, a 14-year-old daughter, who's played by Allison Lohman. So while he is also trying to pull off these cons, including one big con, he's also trying to kind of make amends for some of his past bad choices and try to be, as best as he can be, a good father to this daughter he now discovers. Jeez, you're worse than mom. Angela, listen, I'm glad I met you. I'm glad we met. I really am. But but I've got a business, and I've got a partner, and, and I've got things a certain way, and, and that's it. So, you know, I think it'd be better for you, most of all, if tomorrow morning I took you back home. What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. I just went out. God, I didn't even, I didn't drink. I didn't get high. I didn't take any money from your stupid dog. So what, you never heard of a bank? Uh, uh, that is wrong what you did, and uh, you're a nosy Parker, and, 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 and that's no way for a young lady to behave, and uh, shame on you! I did not plan for there to be, I swear, any kind of theme running through most of my choices here, but it is a theme that goes back to our discussion of Jesse James, this whole idea of storytelling and narratives. And as a con artist, Roy is someone who makes his living off of narratives, telling people what they want to hear or what he thinks they need to hear. And he's trying to go about changing his narrative. The movie also largely succeeds based on us as viewers 
seeing and hearing what best fits the story that we think is unfolding in front of us. Our friend Keith Phipps from the next picture show writing then for the AV club said that Scott lets the machinery of the film's grand scale con click into place with a craftsman's expertise. But what's truly impressive is matchstick men's ability to capture the emotions that drive the machinery, getting beyond simple greed to find the other needs that draw marks to con men and make fools of both. And I think that's obviously eloquently said there by Keith, but does get at what, makes Matchstick Men such a good film. Yes, there's a certain precision to the cons and how they play out. There's some great humor in not only the performance of Cage, but in Rockwell. But there is a real heart to this movie as well underneath that kind of sheen of cynicism. And I think that's what separates Matchstick Men, makes it for me one of the truly memorable films of the 2000s, one I don't think gets enough love. In 2003, I gave Matchstick Men three out of four stars. Okay, well, that's so I was better. a fan as well. And it yeah, it was an interesting the 2000s were interesting for Cage because this was after stuff like The Rock and Con Air, right? I th- I believe it was. So he's he's already had a foot kind of in that yes. loony bin territory action stuff. Um but he was doing stuff like this. He was doing something like The Weatherman, which I mentioned, which is a fantastic Cage performance. So yeah, I, I liked him quite a bit in Matchstick Men and of course Rockwell is good as well. All right, at number four, I have Baby Boy. After a couple of larger scale projects like Rosewood and then his Shaft remake, John Singleton returned to the streets of South Central Los Angeles. That's, of course, the site of his breakout film, Boys in the Hood, for 2001's Baby Boy. This is just a really thoughtful, um, still stylish. It has a lot of Singleton visual touches to it, um, but it is ultimately a deeply thoughtful take on a selfish 20-year-old single father of two who learns to embrace his responsibilities. The lead role is played by Tyrese Gibson, and at that time, he was only known as a model, a singer, and a TV actor. I think he was an MTV VJ as well at the time. He makes a strong featured debut here. Full of feeling this performance is, he brings a reluctant vulnerability to it that's not on the surface, but you always sense it, and really does hold this whole thing together. Also good, which I had forgotten until I was looking back at it for this list, a young Taraji P. Henson as his girlfriend. Really? So, yeah, some um, raw scenes, really raw scenes between the two of them. So this made my top 10 list of 2001. Roger Ebert, also a fan at that time, and he noted in his review how this movie walks a very delicate line. So I wanted to quote him here. Baby Boy is a bold criticism of young black men who carelessly father babies, live off their mothers, and don't even think of looking for work. It is also a criticism of the society that pushes them into that niche. There has never been a movie with this angle on the African-American experience. The movie's message to men, like its hero, is yes, racism has contributed to your situation, but you have to give it so much help with your own attitude. Now, Baby Boy is probably... I would say it's hardly the first film that comes up when people think of John Singleton, especially since he followed this up with Too Fast, Too Furious, also with Gibson. (laughs) But it's absolutely worth a look if you never made it that far down in Singleton's filmography. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Baby Boy. I reviewed it back in 2001 in really my first full year writing any kind of reviews then as a grad student at Iowa. And I would quote from that review right now if I hadn't just glanced at it and wasn't totally embarrassed by it. Okay. So happens to the best of us. Won't be doing that, but I do recall I really enjoyed that film. I think it's one of Singleton's 
better films. He's made some movies I'm not a fan of at all. I would agree. And this is definitely up there with Boys in the Hood as one of his best. My number four is a film that comes from one of our film spotting marathons. And I didn't want to rely on these marathons too much when forming this list because those are by definition devoted to our blind spots. Of course, they're going to be fruitful ground for an overlooked list. But I'm guessing that there are a fair number of listeners in 2017 who chose to overlook the first movie in our new Argentine cinema marathon, Extraordinary Stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a movie from 2008. As far as I can tell, didn't even get a theatrical release in the U.S. There are no box office numbers for it that I could find. Not only that, when it came up as part of our marathon, we had never even heard of it. Right? You hadn't heard That's of it? true. I had yep. never heard of it or heard of the director, Mariano Ginas. And up until recently, when Mubi had it as an offering on their platform, it was pretty much impossible to see. This isn't a movie that you could just get on VOD or streaming anywhere. Now, as far as I can tell, you can see it on Amazon Prime. You can rent it if you are on Prime and you just need to set aside four hours. Yeah. But if you do that, it's well worth it. Absolutely. It was your, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, it was your best picture. It was my favorite film from that marathon. And it's a movie that takes three different characters who just have letters for names. We know them as H and X and Z and their stories that don't really seem to be interconnected at all. And frankly, Josh, it's been so long since I've seen the film. I'm not sure that the movie does ever really unite them in a way that maybe you would expect with a movie like this. I wouldn't say it all comes together. No, no, it doesn't come together with that kind of neat resolution. It's one of those films that as you watch these characters and their lives and these actions unfold in front of us, you just never know what to expect. The extraordinary of the title is completely appropriate because at first it seems like all these characters are leading completely unremarkable lives. One of them is a bored civil engineer. One is an architect and surveyor. Another one is basically just a bureaucrat, but they do get caught up in these truly remarkable situations. And I love the way that we become sort of active in the creation of these narratives unfolding because of the way we see Here's that word from Jesse James again, perspective, the way we see different events unfold, sometimes multiple times, sometimes the camera is just moving closer, gives us as viewers more of an opportunity to scrutinize. And it's not a case where it's really about showing things from different points of view. It's not as if the filmmaker is trying to make a variation on Rashomon where it's this character's perspective and this truth. But we are always aware that there is a storyteller pulling the strings who can give us one perspective and then change it for us. And some of the techniques that are used here, too, are so great. The flashbacks that we get, there's dream sequences, there's a direct address to the camera by a dead guy, there's split screens, and yet it is so novelistic. It's one of those movies. I know you're going to think I'm copping out here, but I think probably even you, Josh, didn't watch this in one four-hour sitting, did you? If I recall... I had a dinner break. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, it came right back to me. Yeah. It would be a lot to take in. But it does seem to me, whether it's one break or two breaks or more, it's the kind of movie that you can sort of check back in on, just like a book that you put down. Right. That's a novelistic character. You can come back to it and just pick up at any point, and you're going to get caught up in these characters and their events. I looked at Letterboxd, not the end-all, be-all of logging movies necessarily or telling us how widely seen a movie is but a good indicator and only 805 people have 
clicked on Extraordinary Stories as a movie that they have seen. To put that in perspective, In the Mood for Love had 62,000 and Spirited Away had 228,000. Hmm. So only 805 people on Letterboxd have seen Extraordinary Stories. It was my favorite movie of that entire marathon, and it's well worth the time. Yeah, your highlight of that marathon, I think I gave that award to a different film, but did give two different awards to Extraordinary Stories. So definitely worth checking out. All right. At number three, this one for me is a really deep cut, almost totally forgotten, but it really affected me at the time and it deserves to be remembered. It's 2003's My Life Without Me, starring Sarah Polly as a young woman. She's a wife and a mother of two who's diagnosed with terminal cancer. She doesn't tell her family and instead spends her last few months trying to set things up for them for life after she's gone. And this includes identifying a wife for her husband, who's played by Scott Speedman. And now at the same time, she also starts taking these chances on things that she feels like she missed out on in her fairly mundane life. All of that probably sounds like melodrama, but knowing Polly as an actress, you can probably imagine the subtle sincerity she brings to the part. And you also have some strong work here from Mark Ruffalo, who plays a man she meets and he comes to represent what she does feel like she may have missed out on. The director is Isabelle Couchette, and she also did the screenplay. She's adapting Nancy Kincaid's novel here. She just has this delicate, almost magical realist touch that keeps things from feeling too soap opery. And there's an especially nice flourish at one point, uh, a grocery store dance number where Polly's character is just doing her everyday shopping and everyone around her begins to dance as she just thinks about this space she's suddenly come to inhabit uh, with her health. I think you can also really see My Life Without Me's influence on the films that Polly would go on to make as a director, especially something like Away From Her which has this, you know, there's a confirmation of mortality going on there. And also Polly's documentary, Stories We Tell, where she interrogated family secrets of her own. Not as many laughs here as in Nacho Libre, but still a really strong film, a very moving one. It's worth a look uh, if you are going to be tracking down some forgotten gems mm. from the 2000s. Yeah, it's one that's overlooked by me. I have not seen My Life Without Me. Great pick. I'm going to stick with the Canadian theme anyway. And actually, you mentioned Sarah Pauly and Stories We Tell. This is another playful take on the personal memoir. Before I give you the title, though, I have to read this email from a film spotting listener. This is a title that I knew was going to make this list instantly because at the start of Film Spotting Madness, we got an email chiding us for overlooking this movie and many others, as you're going to hear. The subject line was, Film sputtering madness. This is going to be a theme on this show. More anger. Richard Pout. Poot? Perfect. P-O-U-T-T. No, let's go with Pout. Pout. Let's go with Pout. He's <laughs> pouting in Canada. He says, I enjoy listening to your show and like to indulge in inappropriate umbrage as much as the next guy regarding your madness selections. I just received an email from the Vancouver International Film Festival Theater announcing a retrospective of a filmmaker whose absence from your bracket is so dumbfounding that I kind of can't take any of its results seriously. You had Yi Yi from Taiwan and In the Mood for Love from Hong Kong, but nothing from Jia Zhanka, who only spent the entire decade mass 
masterfully filming the story of China's eruption into the 21st century. I know a touch of sin falls outside of your timeline, but you still had platform. Unknown Pleasures, The World, Still Life, and 24 City available for selection. Platform and Still Life at least ought to have been no-brainers. I'll watch a movie about people living in a city as it is being systematically demolished to accommodate the reservoir slowly rising behind the Three Gorges Dam rather than the curated violence of comic book Earth, Tarantino Earth, or Middle Earth every time. Wow. So a lot of films there that film spotting listeners have probably also overlooked, at least a few of them. But all that said... It's not one of those movies that I'm going with here. It's the one that's in Richard's P.S. He says, you also ignored the scrupulous documentary of Guy Madden's brain that is my Winnipeg, Mm. despite your fondness for films about imaginary realities. Yes, we didn't include it in Film Spotting Madness. My Winnipeg, his memoir, his docu-fantasia, as it's known, from 2008, a movie that I viewed at the Toronto Film Festival in 2007, the same festival I saw the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I saw my Winnipeg in a much more alert state. Pretty good tiff that year, I might add. My three favorite films ahead of my Winnipeg at that fest were No Country for Old Men, Atonement, and Juno. My Winnipeg is this wonderful blending of fact and fiction and, yes, fantasy and It's still historical in nature. It's giving us some truth about the city of Winnipeg. You come away knowing much more about that city and its history than you may have ever thought you needed. Of course, you're also learning true things, actual things from Guy Madden's life. He chose to view Winnipeg, the city he grew up in, through the prism of his own childhood experience. And I was listening back to some of the conversation that I had, along with Maddie, actually, he had just joined the show in 2007. We talked to Guy Madden in one of the little malls, just a coffee shop right there at the Toronto Film Festival outside the theaters. And he mentioned that this movie came about, actually, because it was the assignment of the producer. He threw out this idea, and it certainly wasn't Madden's original concept because he doesn't typically make documentaries. He has a real reverence for documentarians, and it just wasn't a mode that he saw himself working in, but it was always part of the assignment to make it personal, and that's what hooked him. Now, Maddie saw the screening at that fest where Guy Madden did the narration that you hear in the movie. He performed it live there at the festival. I unfortunately missed that, but as I said, had a chance to talk with Madden, and it was fun revisiting that conversation. I asked him what came first, because the imagery is so vivid vivid in this film and so outlandish and fantastic. And then you've got this wonderful voiceover narration that goes with it. I was curious, which came first? Did he have the narration? He had the story and then he found these images to match it? Or did he have the images in his head and match the words with it? He talked about that in the interview and also about whether or not going back and dramatizing moments from his own childhood, but with actors Mm -hmm. playing him and his family, whether that was just on his part, a fun conceit for a film or whether it was actual catharsis or provided any catharsis. And here's what he said. Um, you know, I, it's, it's only recently that I discovered that uh, filmmaking is really therapeutic in, in many ways that I never suspected. Uh, I never, I've not once have I worked through any problems and gotten to the root of them or anything, but it's just that, Filmmaking takes so long. It's at least a year to get a feature out if you're even a fast mover, you know. From, uh, and um, and you have to watch your own movie so many times, and and you have to reread what you've written, and then and then, in other words, um, you end up getting bored of what you were once obsessed with. Um, 
and and it's actually just kind of a form of aversion therapy. It's just that you just instead of being at peace with your childhood traumas because you've, like I say, worked them through. You know, you've just grown tired of your childhood traumas, and they don't traumatize you anymore. Besides, you've turned them into f- uh, something else, something you're now proud of. And uh, it was a really fun conversation with Madden. A lot of great insights, and you can find that conversation in our show notes for this episode. If you are curious over at filmspotting.net, this movie did get a Criterion Collection release in January 2015, so it may have a little bit of a higher profile than some of the movies that we're talking about. But at the same time, you look at Letterboxd, only 5,300 people mark it as viewed. I don't think it's that widely seen. It certainly could be seen by a wider audience. Well, and in my case, I that's probably the first title that would come to mind if you said Guy Madden, but I haven't even seen it. So hmm. this is an overlooked one by me as well. Strangely, the only Madden film I've seen is Dracula Pages from A Virgin's Diary, so I've got some work to do when it comes to Madden. Okay, at the number two spot, this one people are probably going to be vaguely familiar with. They remember it came out, but may not have actually seen it because it didn't really do very well, even though it came from a big director and had big stars. It's What Lies Beneath from the year 2000. Robert Zemeckis is the director here, and this is his thriller about a married couple played by Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer whose house appears to be haunted after their daughter leaves for college, and that causes some friction between them. She's dead. Who's dead? You know damn well who's dead. Oh, this is your... Listen to me. He killed her, and I'm not crazy. Jody and I had a seance in the bathroom. Jody and I, and nothing, nothing happened, but when I went back there, she was there. She was. Wait, wait, wait. You, you had a seance. Are you angry with me? What? Maybe you resent how busy I've been. No. This starts as a rear window riff. So Michelle Pfeiffer suspects her neighbor of murdering his wife. And then it goes on later to employ some bathtub imagery, similarly to the way Hitchcock used a shower in Psycho. Zemeckis is such a master craftsman that I just love seeing him play with this sort of suspense, especially in those tub sequences. Then it goes on to do the Hitchcock thing of undermining a beloved movie star once Ford's husband comes under suspicion. So think about you know what he did with James Stewart and Vertigo. That's what he's doing with Ford here. This was widely dismissed as a Hitchcock ripoff. That's what most people saw it as. I took a little bit more generous of a vantage point and appreciated it as an homage. And what's the difference, you might say? For me, I saw him using the conventions to do something new, and that's bring in this element of the supernatural. Now, others hated this because it was decidedly un-Hitchcockian. So they were damning Zemeckis for both Mm. aping Hitchcock and then making this left turn that wasn't like him. But for me, I liked how it made things distinct from the master uh, while also allowing the movie to draw upon him. And ultimately, really, in what lies beneath what's most Hitchcockian about it is that it's all about guilt. And for me, that's what made the movie stick. There are definitely thrills and suspense and gotcha moments and all that stuff. Um, But this one stuck with me, too, because it is a rumination on guilt at the end of the day. Yeah, it's another one I need to see. I've only ever watched scenes from What Lies Beneath over the years just coming on TV. And it always seems to be at that exact moment where we get that switch with the husband character Mm. and some of those bathtub sequences that you are mentioning. So I guess I kind of know where the movie's going, even if I don't know how it gets there. My number two is my third film in a row, randomly, from the year 
2008. And it's another documentary, though one that's a lot more grounded in reality than my Winnipeg. And it's At the Death House Door directed by Steve James, co-directed with Peter Gilbert, who also produced Hoop Dreams with James, was a DP on that film, actually. And he also produced another James film that I considered for this list, 2002's Stevie. This is the letterbox description of At the Death House Door, and it will become clear in a moment why I'm reading this summary. An investigation of the wrongful death of Carlos de Luna who was executed in Texas on December 7th, 1989, after prosecutors ignored evidence inculpating a man who bragged to friends about committing the crimes of which DeLuna was convicted. My immediate response to that was, that's funny. That's not at all what I remember at the Death House Door really being about. I remember that the Carlos DeLuna case comes up, but that's not the primary narrative of this film. And sure enough, if you look at the first comment on Letterboxd, it's two stars from a user that says, But what they actually mean is there is nothing being investigated and is almost two hours of an effing vicar talking to the camera. (laughs) That was the very agitated response to At the Death House Door and that plot summary. The plot summary is just off. As I said, it does explore that case and his execution and a Chicago Tribune investigation into that case. That's, in fact, how this project first was pitched to Steve James. They said, we want to look at the death penalty and use this case as the key story for the film. And this was all what Steve James told me at a 2016 event, looking back on 20 years of his career. And we touched on this film. He said that he was interested, but he was apprehensive for a variety of reasons. And then they mentioned a man named Carol Pickett. They said he was the chaplain for 15 years at this prison unit in Huntsville, Texas, and he had presided over 95 executions, including Carlos de Luna's. And that's for James where the light went off. And this is where that element of storytelling comes into play. Pickett made an audio recording with each one of those 95 men just before they were ushered off to their execution. James said, that's the film. That's the story I want to tell. I can bring in these other elements, but I want to focus on Pickett. And this is something I think James has shown throughout his work, an effort to give voice to the voiceless, to the marginalized, to the overlooked in society. And there is a political element to this film, but it's really more about the existential toll that it takes on this man who is a fascinating character, as you would imagine. There isn't really a clear sort of call to action, I would say, by the end of the film, but it is a philosophical and very personal and very emotional journey. And as far as overlooked on Letterboxd, this movie, 88 views. Really? 88 views throughout the Death House door. And I would say not only see it, but it's up there with James's best documentaries. Yeah. And so it came, what, over 10 years after Hoop Dreams, his best known, that probably has a lot more Letterboxd mm-hmm. views, but also one, even though I've followed other films in his career, I haven't seen. Another James film that is definitely going to be in consideration for my list when we do this next year, the 2010s, will be The Interrupters, mm-hmm. which touches on some of those same themes that you're talking about. So, yeah, I need to see At the Death House Door. All right, I think we're up to our number one, right? And I'm going to go with The Promotion. I've talked before about my 2000s artistic crush on Steve Conrad. That name is also going to be an overlooked one, one that most movie fans aren't going to recognize right away. But he wrote Nicolas Cage's The Weatherman, which was, as I said, on my top five overlooked films list we did earlier. And then here he wrote and directed the promotion. This is his only feature directorial effort. Came out in 2008. 
comedy drama. I think I describe it. It's maybe more comedy than drama, but it stars John C. Riley and Sean William Scott as assistant managers at a grocery store who end up vying for this new manager position that's opening in a store they're building nearby. There's a similar vibe here to television's The Office, which I didn't pick up on then, but we happen to be binging The Office right now at home as a family, and both are interested in some similar things. They both burrow into the mundane of the everyday and then comically highlight you know, the pettiness that can be found there and also the humanity that's surprisingly on display in these quotidian places. And as a matter of fact, Jenna Fisher plays Sean William Scott's wife. Scott is really good here. I mean, I was a fan of him as Stifler in the American Pie films, Mm -hmm. but this is a much more nuanced sort of comedy that he absolutely nails. And you know I can't get enough of John C. Riley when he's in comedy drama mode. This also is subtler than he is in My Beloved Cedar Rapids. I think this is a subtler film overall. And he gets this solo shuffle alone at night in the grocery store that made another top five list of mine. We did top five dance sequences in non-musicals. Remember that one? Uh That was episode 412. I don't know why I have two. Here's here's my grand unified theory for my list, Adam. Yeah. Dance numbers in grocery stores. Okay. That's that's what I use to form this list. (laughs) Now, like The Office, um, which I think begins – by laughing at the people that we see in the office. Here we begin by laughing at these two guys, and then it turns into something where we do begin to sympathize with them, and it allows the promotion to become... Here's where it's helpful to look back at when the movie came out, too. For me, a real part of the value of it, which may not register as much today, but back in 2008, it was really trenchant and timely just on the brink of recession. You've got these two decent average Joes who are caught in this rat race, And instead of just lampooning that, it it kind of makes us understand that they're both clawing after the same piece of moldy cheese and they're going to they're going to lose out at the end. And the comedy comes in recognizing and empathizing with their plight. So I just really love the promotion and I haven't done the letterbox thing. I'd be curious. Maybe I'll do that and see a minute here what the viewings are for this, because it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. No, and it's one I haven't seen. I was going to say that I haven't seen any of Conrad's stuff, but actually, I know I watched The Weatherman. I rented it at some point. Okay. Never reviewed it, never really thought about it seriously, liked the film, liked the Cage performance. It wasn't a film I had as passionate a reaction to as you, but I have never seen the promotion despite all the times you have brought it up here over the years. I definitely do need to see it. And just found it on Letterboxd, 2,000 views. Okay. So, so I can be 2001. Than, yeah, there you if go. If I finally see the promotion. And speaking of Sean William Scott, I did think about Role Models, the David Wayne comedy, which I adore. Oh, yeah. He's so good in that with <laughs> Paul is. Rudd, but didn't quite make the list for me. My number one is a movie that I did initially think of and then write off because I thought, Longtime listeners are very familiar with how much I love this film, but the reality is when I think about a film from the 2000s, going back to that original premise that I abandoned, a movie that I would love to watch with an audience at a film festival Mm -hmm. and that I know not enough people have seen because they probably just like me initially dismissed it because of the title, it's Lynn Shelton's Hump Day. Ah, yes. And this is a film that one astute critic who gave it a positive review on his website described this way. Writer-director Lynn Shelton takes a boozy late-night query, what if a pair of male heterosexual best friends agreed to have sex on film for an amateur porn contest and turns it into a thoughtful, revealing, and challenging consideration of what it means to be a friend, a husband, a lover, and a 
straight man. That is one Josh Larson writing about Hump Day, a movie that came out in 2009 and was my number two movie of that year. I was initially thinking of Shelton as one of these filmmakers who might fit in nicely as one of the key filmmakers of this period, but actually it's a little bit later. If you look at We Go Way Back in 2006, which I haven't seen, then My Effortless Brilliance, which is the first film I think that really garnered her some attention, and then Hump Day, that was 2008 and nine, and then we get Your Sister's Sister and Touchy Feely later on into the 20, later on into the 2010s. And the movie is this thoughtful consideration of what it means to be all of those things you touched on, Josh, a friend, a husband. It's very much a movie about marriage. And it's also very much a movie about art and about artists or people who at some point in their lives find themselves questioning some of their choices and wanting to make some kind of emphatic statement. They want to, to put it in the parlance of some of the films we've talked about here on the show so far, to craft a new narrative for themselves, to break out of the story that they are currently in. And they think that this radical act being captured on film is going to be what does it for them. The them in this case is Mark Duplass and Joshua Leonard, who were best friends back in college and then reconnect here in their mid-30s. Stop trying to let me off the hook. Because you know what it sounds like? It sounds like you're trying to put this off on me as to why we're not okay, doing so it. Because you can't handle straight it. Up, straight, straight up. Straight up. Straight up. You would have sex with me on film for this project tomorrow night. I could night. absolutely do this. You could or you would? I would do it. You would? Yeah. Because I would. Really? Totally. But I don't think we should do this because, like, neither one of us wants to back down. Like, this shouldn't be about us, like, I'm, I'm challenging not, each other. Like, this should be about us. If we want to make a piece of art, we should make a piece of art together. I I think the idea I think the idea is fucking weird, but I think it's great. It's weird, but it's amazing, and it pushes boundaries, and that's what good pieces of art should do. This is a movie that I do think offers a lot to think about, but also is really funny and does yes. fit into this kind of mumblecore concept, at least as far as being, it seems, mostly improvised, structured, but improvised. Those two have great chemistry together, Duplass and Leonard, and I guess at the end of the day, any movie that can be called Hump Day and be as profound as it is <laughs> deserves to be seen by more people. Hump Day is my number one overlooked film of the 2000s. I like this. You, you should quote me in your picks more often. I don't think I've ever done that before. It, <laughs> it felt, worked. It really? felt wrong. No, it worked it really felt well. Wrong, but yeah, actually, no, Gave I needed little, you there. a little heft <laughs> to your reasoning. Those are our top five overlooked films of the 2000s. I'm guessing we might have a few honorable mentions. I know I do because they were the movies already mentioned by me on episode 396. <laughs> yes, obviously. I said it was my Never Let Me Go memorial list. All films from the 2000s somehow, I had Shotgun Story, the great Jeff Nichols debut, Enemies of the People, a documentary I saw, I believe at Sundance, Fast Food Nation from Richard Linklater, Black Snake Moan, the Craig Brewer mm -hmm. follow-up to Hustle and Flow that Sam and I both adored, and Son of Rambo, which Sam and I saw at a festival and also loved. Those were the five that obviously would fit in great on this list if they weren't already mentioned. A couple others I'll throw out that I did seriously think about Josh John Cameron Mitchell's first two films Hedwig and the Angry Inch is getting a Criterion release but I still don't feel yeah. like it maybe gets the due it deserves so I thought about it Short Bus is another film that I really do enjoy Mysterious Skin 
I wouldn't say that Greg Araki film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a film I enjoy because it's a very tough sit, but a very well-made film. And finally, Ramin Barani's Man Push Cart, mm. maybe the number six film on this list for me. Yeah, and I remember Juan Ebert particularly really championing. Yeah, so. he did. In fact, I saw it for the first time in my Ebert class at the University of Chicago's Graham School when I did my Remembering Ebert course, looking at films that he championed. That Barani film was on the syllabus. There you go. All right. So I obviously have a whole host of honorable mentions I could get to. I'm just going to grab a few from that. How many other films has Steve Conrad made? (laughs) Unfortunately, what I brought up were the highlights. All right. So Dinosaur is this early Disney computer animated effort that's a beautiful artifact and also a moving survival story. Unfaithful is an infidelity drama with Richard Gere and a career high performance from Diane Lane. Barrow's very heavily, more heavily now I can recognize after I've seen David Lean's masterful brief encounter. I had just seen that recently mm-hmm. and realized how much is at play in Unfaithful. I like Unfaithful. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, George Clooney's directorial debut, still his best. Autofocus. This is an underrated Paul, Paul Schrader. Schrader film. Yes. Haven't seen it. With Greg Kinnear as sex addict, Hogan's hero star, Bob Crane. I'll just leave that there. Roll Bounce is Malcolm D. Lee's sweet family drama set around a Southside Chicago roller rink in 1978. Stars Bow Wow. Remember Bow Wow, Adam? Were you listening to him in the 2000s? Sure. Sure. And then one more here. Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, a stunning first step into our now dominant movie world of digital special effects for better and for worse. But I just love how Sky Captain looks. Haven't seen that one. So a lot of films overlooked by the other host here on Film Spotting. I think that makes it a pretty good list. And I will point out, although we don't necessarily always list the honorable mentions, if we were going through those very quickly, you couldn't jot down some of the titles you were curious about. We put the titles for every top five list, including a lot of the clips that you hear played on the show, other links that might be relevant on our website, filmspotting.net. You just click on lists at the top of the page and you can look back at every single top five list and all the titles that make our list. That's our show. We reunited for one episode and now you're off. Yeah, we're going to have to ease back into this every week. I guess. Over at the website, you can also find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can vote. It's finally come to the championship round of Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 2000s, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, or there will be blood. Only one can survive. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts this week, and then next week they're going to pair up Jordan Peele's Us with Philip Kaufman's The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's from 1978. If you want to get yourself a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to connect with Adam and I on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And if you'd like to get the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, just subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, The Best of Enemies, starring a couple names that have come up on this very show. Taraji P. Henson plays a civil rights activist named Ann Atwater who faces off against C.P. Ellis, played by Sam Rockwell, who is exalted Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan in 1971. It's set in Durham, North Carolina, over the issue of school integration. And now, I, wait a minute. I know I'm just immediately having three billboards 
flashbacks to all that criticism and Rockwell playing another racist oh. character. And I'm I'm just not going to see this film. Well, this is this sounds like a, a Green Book three billboards mashup that yes. nobody needs. But I'm more interested in Exalted Cyclops. Oh, yeah. Is that really a thing? Yeah, that's really a title. That's really a title. I, no wonder Have Spike Lee gowns. No wonder were. Spike Lee saw the Ku Klux Klan as fodder for comedy. There you go. Pet Cemetery also out, starring Jason Clark and Amy Simons. John Lithgow also stars in that remake and Shazam, which seems to be getting pretty good reviews. And when I took my kids, my two youngest this past weekend, to see How to Train Your Dragon 3, they wanted to see that. Good. I yeah. like those. It's probably my least favorite of the three. Hmm. It's fine, though. Gorgeous to look at. Yeah. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. The boys liked it a lot, and they liked even more the Shazam trailer. So you're going to go to Shazam so, this weekend, maybe? I'm guessing I'm probably going to take them to that. And in limited release here in Chicago, Ash is the Purest White from the director, Gia Janka, came up in our overlooked top five list, the director of A Touch of Sin, Mountains Made Apart, and Still Life. I think Still Life is the only one of his films that I have seen. And I know Michael Phillips, who was just here last week, gave this a glowing review in the Chicago Tribune, said it was one of the best films of the year so far. Next week, Josh, you are out. And I think I'm doing okay. I'm going to replace you not only with Scott Tobias, but with Claire Denis. Yeah, add them both up and you're probably Maybe? good. Okay. Yeah. Claire Denis will be here. We will talk about her movie High Life starring Juliette Binoche and Robert Pattinson. Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show will join me for a discussion of that film. And we will do the honors of crowning the Film Spotting Madness champ. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week comes from Hembury. More information is at hembrymusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.